So Isaiah 52, verse 13, which is a, 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 a Isaiah lived several hundred years before Christ. And, uh, but this is one of the servant songs, uh, the prophetic writing about the coming of a servant. And this explains the kind of servant he was going to be. So uh, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told of them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. And then if you turn with me to John chapter 17. John's gospel chapter 17. And just a a portion of the prayer that Jesus is praying here uh, just before he's arrested and sent to the cross. John 17 verse 1. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Stop there. Amen. So we're, we've been looking the last, how is it, three weeks now? Three weeks on how God establishes relationships with human beings. And we have seen that uh, in order for, uh, for that to happen, for God to establish a relationship with mankind, God has to voluntarily come down to our level. And, minister, and, and, and interact with us. We can't reach up to God because we're creatures. But he is the creator God. And he comes down to us. And uh, so he does so voluntarily. And it's what our confession calls God voluntarily condescending to come down to us. And when he does that, he comes down and enters into covenant with mankind. The nature of the relationship between man and God is the relationship of covenant. And, it's, and in that covenant, God makes promises to man. He sets requirements that man must fulfill. And he spells out penalties for failure, but also rewards for keeping covenant with God. That's the general scheme for God's covenants, that God initiates the covenants and he sets, makes promises, makes, sets requirements, uh, announces penalties, uh, but also promises rewards. And last week we looked at the first historical covenant uh, in history not, uh, uh, with man, and that was the, the so-called covenant of works, and we were thinking about the covenant 
made with Adam before he fell into sin. So you may remember that uh, uh, Adam has such a blessed existence, Adam and Eve had such a blessed existence in the Garden of Eden. And God, the garden was a place where God would walk and God would be with Adam and Eve. He would have fellowship with Adam and Eve. And so Adam and Eve enjoy this relationship, this fellowship with God in the garden. And that's great already, but of course what is also held out to to Adam and Eve uh, is... A promise of a life even greater. And we see that because of the tree of, uh, how God points out the tree of life. He says, don't eat from that, uh, uh, the tree of life. And so the tree of life is standing there uh, in the middle of the garden. And it stands as a symbol of a life yet to be received. So they're already richly blessed. But there's more to to be had. So this is a a glorious... uh, uh, setting for the, the covenant of what's the covenant that God makes with Adam. But there's one requirement uh, we saw. Uh, there's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, uh, so God says, don't eat of that tree. Uh, so one little restriction. So the whole vast garden of Eden, <laughs> marvelous uh, riches that are there that he can, he can enjoy. And he says, but don't eat that one tree. Uh, just obey me. Uh, and if you do eat of that tree, you will die. So fairly serious. A small thing, but it's a serious thing. Don't eat of that tree. And, uh, and that death that God speaks of is not simply our physical death, though it includes that. But it's, it's the breaking of fellowship with God. That's what the Bible means by death. It's the breaking of blessed fellowship with God. And so that would be lost. And, uh, and as a result, you know, everything is going to become miserable. And that's what we see as the story plays out in Genesis 3. Everything becomes miserable. And it culminates in physical death. So Adam and Eve eventually die, physically. And they are cast out from the garden. So that place of fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall is now lost to them. And, uh, and everything went bad after that. Now next time, we're, we're going to come back to the, the aftermath of the fall uh, in the next sermon, I think. So we're not going to dwell too much on that. But for now, the fall, the fall into sin, presents a, a, a problem for mankind uh, and all their offspring. Because access to life has been lost And Eden has been lost. So they might be saying to themselves, well, is that it then? Have we blown it? Is there no hope now? And if you mean, is there a way that Adam can can Adam reverse his disobedience? Well, no, you, you can't reverse disobedience. Once you've done it, you can't undo it. You can't undo sin. And so, um, it's a real problem for Adam and Eve, isn't it? And for all mankind, all his generations after him, uh, no access to the the garden, no access to the tree of life. uh, By obedience. It's impossible. And, you know, Adam is 
is now defective and that he has sin in him. And he's kind of like a mold. You think of all the children that are going to come and the generations that are going to come from, from Adam. So Adam is, is kind of like the mold. And then the production line is all the children that come later. And so Adam is defective. And so everybody's defective after that. They carry the same defect of sin. So everybody's in the same boat. Every, all generations that follow are in the same boat. Well, is that the end? Could the Bible have just been three chapters? <laughs> what a sad story. Well, of course not. Uh, as far as God is concerned, uh, there is another way. There is another covenant But this time, not a covenant requiring perfect obedience on the part of human beings like you and me. Because that's impossible. We're all defective because of our sin. But God is going to provide a way. A covenant this time of grace, of free gift. Where the blessings can be made over to us by a free gift somehow. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the various stages of that in history. Uh, How God graciously comes uh, to his people and offers them uh, his grace. But for now, I want you to... Uh, I want you to pause uh, for a moment and just think about what you already know about the way of salvation. Sometimes as you read the Bible, uh, just think about the New Testament, for example, just now. Uh, Salvation is offered to mankind with various conditions attached. Uh, So in Romans 10, verse 9, we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks, but uh, in the evening. But uh, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So... Yeah, you will be saved, that's a statement. But there's a condition, if you believe and confess. And so it seems that there's a condition attached to to salvation. You've got to believe. However, sometimes in the New Testament, that salvation hinges, it seems to be, only on Jesus Christ. Uh, So, for example, uh, in verse 4 of John 17... uh, Jesus talks about his work on earth. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus has accomplished, or is about to accomplish, everything that has been given to him. And so everything hinges on Jesus Christ. And if Jesus does his work, then his people will be saved. So how do we reconcile those two things? On one hand, there seems to be a condition of faith and repentance. And on the other hand, it's unconditional. Jesus has done the work. Well, to, to reconcile those two views, we have to recognize that the covenants that we see being made in history, for example, with Abraham, or with Moses, or with David, are founded on a, on a prior commitment a prior covenantal commitment between the Father and the Son in eternity. And of course the the Holy Spirit is present as well, but he's very much in the shadows, isn't he? What's the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus Christ. So he doesn't point to himself, 
So it's a, a Trinitarian covenant that is prior to anything that happens in history. The relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. An agreement that is met between the persons of the Trinity. And it's not that this is, a, is different from the covenant of grace that you see spread out through history after the fall. But actually it's just another aspect of the same covenant. It's looked at it from a different perspective. From God's perspective. And it's founded on this commitment between the Father and the Son aimed at redemption. But it's a covenant established in heaven. Some call this the covenant, the, the covenant of redemption. Might be confusing the, the names of all the covenants. But some people call that the covenant of redemption, or if you're uh, especially clever, uh, you might call it the pactum salutis, if you're Latin, if you know your Latin. Uh, the covenant of peace, or the council of peace. And the covenant of salvation. And the question, so the question then is, is there any biblical evidence for this covenant commitment between the Father and the Son prior to history. And yes, we get uh, uh, indications of it for all over the scripture. Now let me just read to you what we sang earlier, Psalm, Psalm 2, uh, verses 7 to 9. I will tell, so this is, this, this is the, the king speaking, the, uh, speaking of the Messiah, the Messiah king, I will tell of the decree the Lord, that's the Father in heaven, said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, so the Father speaks to the Son and the Son is to receive the nations. And to break all their rebellious powers in pieces through his work. So the relationship between the Father and the Son is established in, in heaven. This is what he's going to do. Or Psalm 40. Uh, I should warn you, we're going to jump around in quite a lot of verses, so I hope you're ready for this. Um, Psalm 40. Again, another messianic psalm. Uh, but this time about... Uh, how the, the Messiah is going to come. He says in verse 7, I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. So this is the, the Messiah speaking uh, of the Lord and the relationship he has with the Lord and to the Lord. And it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, and applied directly to Christ. So we know it's about Christ. And here the Messiah is given a task to do. To do God's will. And he delights in doing it. So he willingly goes into it. It's his joy to do what his Father has called him to do. And so this is established in heaven. I, des I delight to do these things. I want to do your will. This is Jesus. And then moving into the New Testament, John 6, verse 38. Jesus speaks about his own ministry. About his own relationship to his father in John chapter 6. 
And he says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven. You see where he's come from? I've come down from heaven. What a staggering statement that is on its own. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see the certainty that Jesus has, that he's come to do the will of his Father, and in doing so, he is going to lose none of those that he's been given, and he's going to raise them up at the last day, and he's going to join in the great assembly of the saints with, with them together and sing. Raise them up. What a fullness, what fullness you see in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That he is, it's all been planned from eternity past in heaven. And Jesus came down to do everything that was planned. And he's done it gloriously. There's no uncertainty about the fact that the people are going to be saved. Well, that's the evidence of this relationship between father and son. But I want to dig in a bit deeper and look in more detail. First of all, the work that Christ came to do. What is it that Jesus has come to do? Another way of putting this is, if you think about the covenant relationship between father and son, what are the requirements that have been put on the son to get the job done? What are the requirements? So I've got three headings. Uh, Other writers have got many more headings. But I've I've just limited it to three. Firstly, the eternal Son, the God the Son, had to become a man. Couldn't just remain as God alone. In order to save human beings... He had to become like a human being. And so we find in Isaiah 49. Again, another servant song in in the book of Isaiah. About the servant who's going to come. And uh, verse 1. Listen to me, O co-sons, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he names my name. God established that there would be a womb from which the Son would come as he was given a human nature. He had to be there, so he had to be born from a woman. He was a real man. Not simply God in man-like appearance, you know, an apparition or something. There have been many heresies down the centuries of people who thought Jesus just appeared like a man. But he wasn't really a man. He was a, a, a God or, or God was in his head somehow. And, but he didn't have a human brain or anything like that. <laughs> All kinds of strange heresies that have turned up. But no, he was fully human. With a human soul and a human body. And human minds, everything about him is human. Yes, he's God. He remains God. He always will remain God. But he took upon himself a full human nature to become exactly like us in every single way. How 
However, he is more than simply a single man, an isolated man. Actually, he had to occupy a position like Adam. Remember Adam? He's the first man. And so he's representative of all his generations after him. And so because he sinned, everybody else has, has suffered the consequences of that. And they, they themselves sin. They're defective too. So Adam is, a, in a sense, a representative man. He's a king over a, a large nation that's going to come. So is Jesus. He's like a king. He's a representative king. He's a public person, as the Puritans used to say. A public person, not just a private person. He stands for other people. And so Jesus Christ becomes king, is to come as a king over a new humanity. Who can represent the whole of that new humanity. And do all that is necessary to save them. And that's why that uh, Jesus is called, in 1 Corinthians 15.45, the last Adam. He becomes a life-giving spirit. But he's, he's the last Adam. He's a representative king figure. Representing this new people. So he had to become a man. Here's the second th- requirement. He needed to come under the law. And this really goes hand in hand with becoming fully human. It was necessary for him to come under the law so that he could obey it perfectly. Unlike Adam, who failed, he was disobedient. But Jesus was to come under the law to be fully obedient. And in doing so, he would not deserve death himself, because he hasn't sinned. But then... He could experience death as a representative for all all his people. So he comes as that representative king to die and suffer the judgment that we deserve for our sin. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's kind of like he gets down and dirty and amongst the muck and the mire of human life. Uh, He becomes like us. He gets stuck in. But he doesn't sin. But he's under the law. He has to be like us in order to redeem a people who can then be called sons and daughters, gathered into the family of God. So he's come under the law, and uh, this is the Jesus who would redeem the people from their sins, as we read from Isaiah 53. He bore their iniquities. The third requirement, so we're still thinking about the covenant requirements, what, what is Father... What requirements does the Father place upon the Son? Third requirement is then to apply the benefits of that work by then sending his Holy Spirit to those for whom he has died. So, Jesus not only dies, but he's buried. And then he rises from the dead in glorious victory. And then he ascends to heaven 
And what does he do when he gets there? He enters into the Holy of Holies and presents himself as the worthy sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. His blood has been spilt and scattered and shed and sprinkled. And so in the Holy of Holies, he becomes that intercession on behalf of the people. So that their sins, there's always a, their sins are dealt with. Jesus is the intercessor on their behalf. And from the throne of heaven, then the Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world, onto the church. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit then, so the Holy Spirit is involved in this covenant. The Holy Spirit then applies the, the merits and the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection to those for whom Jesus has died. So the, the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial to you and I being saved. So that's what Jesus has to do. He has to send the Holy Spirit out into the, into the world, upon the apostles and then to the church. What does the Holy Spirit do? He causes people to be born again, to have newness of life. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when they couldn't do it before. They repent of sin. They experience forgiveness of sin. And they have a new evangelical desire to commit and consecrate themselves to Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does. See, this is the the work that the Father has given the Son. To become a man as a representative of a new people, to be born under the law, and to live an obedient life, and so be that perfect representative. And then having won victory over death, to then give the Holy Spirit, uh, to send the Holy Spirit upon his blessed people. So that's the requirement. What are the promises of the covenant then? So this is the next thing. What are the promises made to Jesus in the covenant, the so-called covenant of redemption, or pactum salutis? What does God the Father promise to the Son? Well, let me list a number of things against, and uh, forgive me for just going through lists here, but it's just really comprehensive. The first thing is that the Father would prepare a body for Jesus. He'd prepare the way for Jesus. Um, so we quoted from uh, Psalm 40, and then it's, it's used in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, and where the writer of the Hebrews says, a body you have prepared for me. There is an expectation that the Father would prepare the way by providing a body. And that's fulfilled at the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. So Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit, Gabriel says to Mary, "The, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this Son is going to receive a body in the womb of Mary. Second part of the promise is that Jesus, this new 
embodied Jesus would receive the Holy Spirit. And you need to understand that he's become fully human, so he needs to be like us. So how do, we, how do we live in this world under God? Well, we receive the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus had to as well. And that's why you see the Holy Spirit coming down as baptism at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus received the Holy Spirit. And that's promised for us in Isaiah 42. He speaks about his servant. And God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God blesses his son with the Holy Spirit. And it's vitally important that if he's to be fully human, he cannot simply rely on his native divine power, if you like. That he has to walk on this world like a human being. And how does he do that? With the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps him and leads him. So he lived by the Spirit. He kept the law by the Spirit. He remained pure and spotless by the Spirit. He was able to resist the temptation, all the temptations he faced by the Spirit. He was able to endure the sufferings of opposition by the Spirit. And then ultimately on the cross, he was able to endure the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he could bear it. And not instead call down the legions of angels from heaven to come and save him. That was the mocking tone that was uh, things that were said to him as he was on the cross. Can't you just call down angels? Well, he could have done that as the Son of God. As the divine second person of the Trinity. But no, by the Spirit he endured the suffering of the cross. And stayed there. To win that salvation for us. And then thirdly, there's a promise of reward beyond that work of suffering. So Isaiah 53 that we read earlier, uh, towards the end of the, the chapter. So he says in verse 11, So remember, Jesus has suffered for the sins. The the servant has suffered for the sins. But then it says in verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What a glorious thing. The, The suffering's worked. It's achieved everything he intended. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And here's the reward. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The glorious spoils of victory shall belong to Jesus. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. See, Jesus has a reward. He was looking forward to a reward for his, his work of salvation. He'd be satisfied. He'd be numbered with the many. Or in Psalm 22, a similar thing. At the end of the psalm, we didn't sing that, but at the end of the psalm, the glorious picture, verse 25. 
And this is Jesus, this is the Messiah speaking. He says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. You see, Jesus is so happy to be amongst the congregation. And this gathered assembly of people. This is his reward. The blessedness of eternity. And that's why, many of you will know this verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, The writer says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What's the joy they set before him? The joy of the reward at the end of his work. So wonderful. Our Savior. The Father has, so the Father has promised a number of things. He set out the requirements for the Son, who has willingly committed himself to them. And the Father has promised a number of things to the Son. The help the Son needs to commit to finish his work as he humbles himself in a future reward to which he looks forward with great joy. Do you see amazing how amazing that whole work of salvation is? All coming out of this covenant between Father and Son. Let me finish. I've been rambling on for a bit, but let me finish with a few thoughts on what this means for us today. Let me mention a number of things. First of all, there is a way back to life. A way back to life through Jesus Christ. And it's worked by the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it involves the Son becoming the last Adam, Jesus Christ, a head and king of a new humanity, and bearing their sins and dying on the cross as he dies on the cross. So that the good news can then be proclaimed to the whole earth. There is a way, a way to life. And if you're a Christian today, I hope you thank God every day for the salvation that you have, if not more so, more frequently than that. Thank God for for the salvation that is yours because of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian today, then there is hope held out to you. That if you would come to Jesus Christ, you can know that salvation. So there is a way, that's one thing. Secondly, there's only one way. There's only one way. Just think about it. If there's only one God, one Trinity, one Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there's only one covenant of redemption, there can only be one way of salvation. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. So it's only the work that is planned by the Father, executed by the Son willingly, and then applied by the Holy Spirit. It's only that work that can save people. There's only one way. And you won't find this way in any other religion, or any other philosophy, or any other avenue of sphere of life. And and everybody's looking for meaning and purpose in life, and you're trying to find significance in all kinds of ways. There's only one way of salvation. It's through this work of Jesus Christ. And the third implication is this. 
And with us, we'll finish, I think. Uh, oh, no, we're not quite. <laughs> Third implication is this. this. The work of salvation is a done deal. It's done. The work has been finished successfully. Jesus has done it. So the rewards that he has promised will actually follow. That is that all people that he came to save shall be saved in the fullness of time. And the reason for that is that the whole plan has been initiated and carried out from heaven. God has done it all. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father has planned it, the Son has executed, the Holy Spirit has applied it, and is applying it. So in one, in one sense, the saving of a people for Jesus Christ is unconditional for those people. He has met, Jesus has met all the covenant conditions for us in his coming and taking a body, and then su- coming under the law, suffering and dying on the cross, and rising again from the dead gloriously, and then sending out the Holy Spirit. He's done it all. So in that sense, for the people, God's people, it's a done deal. It's only a matter of time before all the people are gradually gathered in. So from the point of view of heaven, salvation is unconditional. It's all done. However, let me just give you another perspective and this is where we sometimes get a little bit confused. This, this, with this, we'll really finish. Uh, there's the perspective of, so there's a perspective of heaven, it's a done deal. But in, from a perspective of being in history, that's us, uh, there is a condition for salvation. And the condition is a really simple one. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. That's what Jesus' message was, isn't it? Repent and believe. Be baptized. In other words, faith and repentance are conditions which must be satisfied for someone to come to faith, come to come to salvation. Now, they're not meritorious conditions. Faith and repentance don't earn you anything. You don't qualify through your faith and repentance. But without faith and repentance, there can be no salvation. So in that sense, it is a necessary experience. In that sense, it's a, it's a condition of salvation. So in one sense, salvation is totally unconditional. Jesus has done it all for all his people. The question is, who is his people. And how do we determine who are his people? And that's where the condition comes in. We see it in faith and repentance. We see it in faith and repentance. How do you know that you're amongst God's people? That you're one of the the ones who've been saved? It's not that you get special insight into God's book or God's list. Like he, he reveals that to you. He doesn't do that. What he says is, come to my son. Turn away from your sins. Come to Jesus. How do you know that you're one of God's people, God's elect people? 
you've turned from your sins and you've come to Jesus. That's the glorious truth. Have you come to Jesus like that? Have you come to know him? You know, you can come to him now. You can even do it now, today. You can receive life from him. You, all you need to do is re- reach out to him in prayer. You need to confess your sins. Express your trust in him. Thank him for all that he's done for you on the cross. And do you know the amazing thing? When you come in like that, you discover an amazing truth. That your coming was no surprise to God. Actually, he was behind it all. (laughs) He did it. He was working in you to give you faith and give you repentance. So for him, it's unconditional. He's just done it. It's a glorious truth, isn't it? The gospel. A done deal. A deal sealed in heaven. I hope you're in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious so-called covenant of redemption. Thank you for the agreements that you make with your Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit to save a people for yourself. Pray that you'd, all of us would be counted in that number, believing Jesus, repenting of our sins. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.